Good afternoon. I call the December meeting of the Health Service Board to order. Uh, would you please join me in saying the Pledge of Allegiance? I pledge allegiance to, to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We'll now have item number two, roll call. Thank you, President Scott. Our roll call was, our call to order was at 1.03 p.m. and our roll call starting with President Scott. Present. Vice President Howe is excused. Commissioner Breslin is excused. And Commissioner Canning is excused. Supervisor Dorsey. Present. Commissioner Follinsby. Present. And Commissioner Zvansky. Present. With that, we have quorum. We have a quorum, almost by default, but we have one. <laughs> Can we go to item number three? I take that. Well, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm a default commissioner. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. Yes, I understand. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number three is general public comment, an opportunity for members of the public to comment on any matter within the board's jurisdiction that is not on the agenda, including requesting that the board place a matter on a future agenda item. I'll be reading our full public comment instructions. Remote viewing is available on SFGov TV and online using WebEx. The Health Service Board welcomes public participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for the general public to comment at the beginning of the meeting and an opportunity to comment on each agenda item. In-person public comment will be first and then virtual public comment. For anyone waiting in person, you're welcome to approach the podium now. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to comment in length unless the board president deems new public comment time limits during the meeting. All public comments are to be made concerning the agenda item that has been presented. A caller may ask questions of the policy body, but there's no obligation to answer or engage in dialogue with the caller. The Health Service Board will hear up to 30 minutes of remote public comment total for each agenda item. Remote public comment for people who have received an accommodation due to a disability will not count toward the 30-minute limit. Members of the public attending the meeting via phone can call in by dialing 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter access code 2660-762. 1309, then press pound. You'll be prompted to enter the webinar password 1145, then press pound. Press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue, and you'll hear the prompt, you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. When the system message says, your line has been unmuted, this is your time to speak. You will be muted when your time has expired. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the queue to speak. A raised hand will appear next to your name. When you're unmuted in the system, a request to unmute will appear on your screen. Please select unmute to speak. Once you hear me say, welcome caller, you can begin speaking. When your time has expired, you'll be muted. Please click on the raise hand icon to lower your hand. Members of the public are encouraged to state their name clearly, although they may remain anonymous. I'll give an audible warning when you have 30 seconds remaining. And when your three minutes have ended, I'll say thank you for your call. You'll be placed back on mute and I'll unmute the next caller. We wanna thank SFGov TV and Media Services for sharing this meeting with the public. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment before going to written submitted public comment. Our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have specifically entered the public comment. Thank you, moderator. I'll move on to our remote or written public comment. We had one submission for written public comment. 
The first written public comment is, was submitted by Tim Lee with SFMTA regarding Delta Dental PPO. He said, recently my child's dentist has decided to leave Delta Dental PPO network due to the reimbursement fee schedule. While trying to find a new inward network de pediatric dentist, I noticed there are not many dentists being in network. Searching on the web, there's also similar results of dentists leaving Delta Dental PPO network. Is there something the board can shed light on the situation or possibly shop for new PPO insurance carriers such as MetLife, Cigna, Aetna, Emeritus, Guardian, Principal, Carrington in the next open enrollment? End of submission. Thank you, and we thank uh, the member for the written public comment. I would ask that the executive director uh, do a review uh, as well in terms of uh, talking with Delta Dental regarding this particular comment. Thank you. Mo moving on to agenda item number four. Agenda item number four is approval with possible modifications of the minutes of the meeting set forth below. These are from the November 9th, 2023 Health Service Board regular meeting minutes and will be presented by President Scott. Are there any edits, changes, or additions to the meeting of November? Hearing none, I'm ready to entertain a motion. For I, move, I move approval of the minutes of the regular Health Service Board meeting of um, November 2023. Second. It's been properly moved and seconded. Is there any board comment? Hearing none, we'll now go to public comment on the minutes of the November meeting. Thank you, President Scott. I'll begin with a short intro while we display the instructions online. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers. Moderator, I believe you said zero callers. So with that, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We're now ready to vote. We'll have a roll call vote. Roll call vote starting with President Scott. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Commissioner Follinsby? Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky? Aye. The motion carries unanimously. Uh, item number five. Agenda item number five, President's Report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by President Scott. Uh, there has been a continuing question that has, been, uh, that has arisen since the Board of Supervisors made a change in their public comment process. As we all know, we had uh, all in-person com public comment prior to the COVID pandemic. With that, and when the pandemic hit, we went to uh, uh, doing it online or in person or a combination of both. And we have maintained that uh, until uh, this most recent incident with the Board of Supervisors having what I would call hate speech type of comments being made during public comment. And they made a decision to discontinue the online or virtual public comment process. And that, again, uh, sent uh, further 
ripples to the rest of the 100, uh, I think it's 165 commissions that we have here in the city or 130 boards and commissions uh, as to what we should do. And uh, during the past several weeks, the uh, board secretaries of the commissions and boards uh, that are present here in the city have met around this issue. I understand the city attorney's office has been involved. And the current state is that uh, apparently I have the authority as the president of this board to discontinue virtual public comment. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm rather going to request that this board make a decision about whether we discontinue or modify uh, public comment going forward. And our process is going to be as follows. I'm requesting the executive director to review the usage and cost for uh, virtual public comment for the last six months. I think I have a sense of uh, how many people we've had on the line during each of the past six meetings, but I'd like to have that uh, in some type of written uh, report. I'm requesting that the board secretary gather additional information from the other board secretaries uh, regarding what other commissions and boards are doing. By now, I'm sure there's been kind of uh, iter an iterative process. I was watching the planning committee, uh, planning commission deal with this question a few weeks ago, and they're kind of going through the same process. Their council had a few a bit of guidance for them, the secretary of their board, and they said, well, let's hold off making a decision at this meeting and we'll do it later. So that is what I'd like the board secretary to do. Uh, I'm requesting of our council that she provide the presiding officer, whoever it happens to be, with some written guidance on what to do if we have uh, hate speech or that type of kind of situation uh, come up uh, during a board meeting and it would be disrupted by it. I think I know what I would do under my own uh, natural instincts as a presiding officer but I'd like to have legal counsel give me some guidance because I don't want to breach uh, the free speech rights of members or callers or those who might be listening into these, these proceedings. So I'd like to have uh, some written guidance uh, from that. And then lastly, the board will have this as an action item uh, for its February meeting. So we'll hear the results of these requests and uh, then take action on how we will proceed to have uh, virtual public comment uh, going forward. So with that, I'm willing to entertain any questions or uh, concerns that the board may have or any of the offices that I have uh, requested these items of. Yes, Commissioner Savansky. Thank you, Commissioner Scott. Um, this is a very serious issue as far as I'm concerned because I'm very actively involved with retired city employees. And our members live all over the city, all over the peninsula, all over the state, all over the nation, and all over the world. And 
our meetings are specific to their benefits, their issues, and to this unique or select population. And I believe that it is essential that we maintain um, under those circumstances and with consideration of our specific and unique um, population or constituency, I should say, that we maintain having remote and virtual public comment available at any and all meetings that we hold. It is a matter of respect for our members. It is a matter of consideration. And I believe it's an essential benefit that we need to provide um, because we have this unique constituency. Thank you for your comment. Are there other comments? I guess the only comment that I would add. Um, uh, Commissioner Follinsby. Um, thank you very much. Uh, President Scott, we just, I think we've had situations in the past where public comment, um, either in person or online, has been sort of out of order. It's really addressing other agenda items or items that um, have to do with the, um, uh, the sort of um, goals and, and mandate of this, of this uh, commission. Um, but I think we would need to make clarity on when uh, either the board secretary or the, the, act, the president or the acting president can rule something out of order uh, if it doesn't fall within the, uh, and we need really clarification on that so that that kind of speech, um, if, if there is a method, um, you know, to, to, to rule on that uh, can be done fairly uh, to all um, participants. All right. Thank you, Commissioner Follinsby. Uh, yes. Just to add, uh, from the perspective of the, um, the Board of Supervisors, one of the things that really plays out, I think, uniquely at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors is that public comment um, is something that plays out on national television sometimes. You may have seen last week, tonight, you know, there, there's, it, it has a national audience, and I think because of that, there's people who were calling in um, directing hate speech at, in, in ways that were disruptive that we don't really want to give a platform to. So there, I think, were some unique situations that the Board of Supervisors faces as a high-profile kind of government body that other, um, I think it would be a disservice to the people that we serve in, other, like, in bodies like this. If that isn't a problem, it may not be something that we have to address. And then the other thing that I think legal counsel can address better than I, but we also do have to make accommodations. You know, Even if we're not having remote public comment, when requested, we have to do that. I know when this came up before um, my committee, one of the thing, concerns I had, because initially we considered this and we decided to allow con continuing public comment, um, was asking, it's a little bit awkward to ask people to identify themselves as having a disability or needing an accommodation. Um, there was, I think, a, a, we didn't have a comfort level of doing that, um, only because circumstances kind of forced our hand that we didn't want to give a platform to something that was really disruptive and delegitimizing to government. Did we make a decision, I think, reluctantly to do that? But I think uh, just for the good of open government and accessibility, if we can avoid that, I think it would be better. All right. Thank you, Supervisor. Any other comment? All right, hearing none. Look, can I, just, oh, I just want to thank you for your, your comment, um, uh, Supervisor, because I think it makes it very clear that the board and no one, had no intention of this uh, policy being extrapolated to other commissions or committees. This was, in fact, um, referring to the Board of Supervisors meeting and it was not a general recommendation or declaration to anyone else. And I think that really helps clarify that, and I thank you for that. 
All right. There's no further board comment. Is there public comment on this item? Thank you, President Scott. We'll open public comment. Uh, the instructions being uh, will be displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have one caller on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now go to item six, director's report. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number six, director's report. This is a discussion item and will be presented by executive director, Abby Ant. Thank you. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I would start, like to start my director's report by uh, welcoming yet another uh, staff member of our member services, uh, Jolene Russo, who is in the room. Would, Would you, you please standing? stand? Thank Welcome. You. We're delighted to have you with us and, and congratulate you on planning to spend this portion of your career with us. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also want to uh, recognize in the room is uh, Carrie Bashirs and uh, her um, coordinator, Lisa Campos. I don't think is in the room, but she may, she may be watching. I don't know. She's pretty busy. Uh, but uh, they pulled off an incredible event for the Wellbeing um, at Work Awards event uh, a few weeks ago, and it was very well attended, and um, they gave out lots of awards to many different city departments. I was um, privileged to be able to moderate a panel of uh, department leaders to really spoke to how they viewed well-being and what uh, well-being activities they were supporting in their department. That panel included um, Dejada Durden from the Department of Public Works. Um, she was quite inspirational to listen to. Uh, Kelly Dearman, who is a department director within the um, Health Service Agency, and um, as well as uh, City Attorney David Chu. So it was a, a nice mix of folks, and they were really uh, very passionate um, about the well-being program. And it's it's just, I think, um, a testament to the work that Carrie and her team have done. They're a small team, uh, but they have very broad reach, and um, it, it just was very satisfying to, um, to, re to, to see them being recognized as well. The... Um, I had the opportunity to testify before the Board of Supervisors Budget and Finance Committee on November 15th, where um, Supervisor Chan had, as the chair of that committee, had requested that we come and do some explaining about the uh, rate increases in the environment that we're currently in with uh, the cost of health care uh, as a precursor to um, the, uh, when we come to before that board for the approval of the rates and benefits in July, um, it's, it, we're under extreme time constraints and everyone really appreciates that. So I do respect her um, forward thinking about sort of laying, laying the ground uh, for uh, what they um, may see in the coming year. I don't know if Supervisor Dorsey, you were able to attend, and did you have any comments? Okay. I appreciate your be having been participating in that. Um, 
We also um, continue to uh, pressure in any way that we can the relationship between the United Healthcare and the UCSF Medical Group. Uh, we were notified yesterday by United Healthcare um, that they are um, resuming negotiations with that medical group. Um, they had been stalled, uh, so that was um, encouraging to hear. Um, so we'll keep everyone informed, um, but to date, we're not aware of any um, problems that have arisen because of this. So while we understand that the medical group has concerns about the uh, situation, they haven't made that um, made any practice changes that we're aware of. And uh, I would appreciate if they do make that decision, any decisions uh, along those lines, that they keep us informed, preferably in writing. Um, but we haven't see seen that yet. Can I just make a comment? Yes. Because uh, I appreciate the fact that this item um, correctly identifies what the issue is. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And my next door neighbor or next door whatever neighborhood, you know, the, <clears throat> someone posted UCSF um, uh, is dropped by United Healthcare. And I didn't even bother to read it. And I don't want to get in the midst of conversation with my neighbors across the city over misinformation. But clearly, you know, for whatever reason, people are rather um, anxious about this. And so I appreciate your efforts and the efforts of your staff to make sure that, A, the issue is clear, that it's not UCSF Medical Center, um, it's a medical group uh, that practices at UCSF, um, and um, that you are monitoring any problems that might arise because of access, both for primary and specialty care. And so I want to, you know, apl applaud your efforts in this regard. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know uh, Ray and Olga are here from members, you know, representing member services. We do get an occasional call or an email, um, and it, it there are people that are worried that something may go awry. But to our understanding, we haven't identified a case that there is a problem. So, um, yeah, we, I, but I do understand the anxiety, and we, I think we'd all like to have this clarified. So hopefully they will come to resolution on this. Um, I did want to remind our board that the blackout period notice was issued on November 9th, um, and we expect that to go through June 24th. If you have any questions about that or um, are approached by anyone, please let us know and we'll walk you through the process. Um, also, CalPERLA, which is a HR professionals organization, um, has, has an annual conference in, in Monterey. Mike Clark, Iftikhar Zane, and myself did a presentation on the healthcare affordability um, and what we have been able to do about it. And um, I do appreciate um, Iftikhar and, and Mike's uh, efforts in helping put this together, and I, um, it was uh, well received. It was Friday morning, though, on the last day of the conference, so it wasn't a packed room. And Commissioner Howe <laughs> presided at one of the meetings? Yes. she Well, she was the moderator for that session, and she's the one who encouraged us to, um, to apply. So that was very uh, helpful. And there were several people from uh, our Department of Human Resources, C Carol Eisen, Mawali, um, who else was there? Uh, Arden, yes their um, labor relations person. So it, it, was, it was an excellent conference, and it's, it's a pretty big event. 
Um, we uh, also, um, I wrote in here about a data breach that we were notified uh, from Blue Shield. I will tell you that, yes, there have been others. There was a big problem with a data warehouse <coughs> called Move It a couple of months ago that seems to have touched tons of organizations. Um, and, um, but we are finding that our, uh, so it's, they're, they're kind of third and fourth degree breaches. They're not directly from HSS. They're not directly from our providers. They go, it's more downstream. Um, uh, so, you know, that's both good, good and not good. Um, what we're trying, what we're in the process of doing is working with Rin Coleridge and her team to create a web page where the information that we have about data breaches would be available so that if people are concerned, um, they'll have a place to, to kind of look it up easily because we um, sometimes just get these kind of random phone calls about a breach that may or may not be one that affects our membership. So um, that's in the works and we'll see something in the first quarter of next year. Um, also starting in January, we will kick off the uh, Health Service Board election process. Uh, we have two member service positions that term out in 24. Uh, Captain Chris Canning and uh, Karen Breslin. And so um, we will need to replace those individuals. Um, and Holly will um, help us understand the process and a presentation that we will do at the January Health Service Board meeting. Um, the Unified School District uh, problems continue. Um, they're really grappling with what to do. They're considering yet another vendor. Um, and so we just have to exercise extreme patience uh, because they, they, their, um, their problems are, are many. And uh, each time they uncover one, it's another sort of bolus of members that we have to work with and sort out and problem solve. And again, hats off to the member services team for uh, being so diligent and patient um, with our, both our members and the, the school district. It's, it's, it's very troublesome, but we're, we do get through it. Um, uh, Leticia um, Harris, um, I, many of you know on our team, our senior health uh, planner, has uh, uh, been invited to speak at an uh, actuarial conference where they're talking about social determinants of health and equity action planning. Um, and uh, I think a, a number of things. One, it's, it's wonderful that we were um, invited to uh, present. But it's also a very hallmark for me, to, who's been working on the social determinant issue for 20 plus years in my career. It's just amazing to see this in the mainstream and um, being talked about and uh, understanding how social determinants uh, and various equity issues really affect our membership. So um, we're, we're learning our way through this with everyone. And so I think that conference will um, be very helpful and it's good that we um, have some experience in this area and can speak to, to that. Um, I have talked here before about some of the external committees that I participate in and boards. The Integrated Healthcare Association is a 40-plus member board uh, that uh, has um, representation from pretty much all major health systems and medical provider groups in the state, and they really work on consensus to be able to improve in the um, delivery systems in healthcare. So we're working on a, on a number of things, um, not the least of which would be advanced primary care, 
um, the equity issues, uh, the cost issues, uh, data issues, et cetera, et cetera. But it's 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 a very um, uh, rich uh, group of people that are really forward thinking, and um, there's a lot of compromise that happens there, which is quite impressive. Um, they um, are very interested in and are watching carefully the Healthcare Advisory Board and its advisory committee that I sit on um, because they are charged with the legislation that um, Governor Newsom uh, uh, sponsored on um, uh, the health affordability of health care. Um, we are getting closer to uh, definitions of total cost of health care and what the targets will be um, and uh, that those decisions will be made in 2024, um, so the, um, there is a, a cap in sight, but it's not been clearly identified, and it will be several years before it actually goes into effect. Um, Leticia also um, uh, monthly writes uh, very informative messages about our health <coughs> equity, diversity, and inclusion activities. Um, much appreciated and uh, often deep understanding into um, how we are working in these areas. Um, the divisional reports uh, you'll see uh, in throughout uh, each division. I, I just want to um, comment on the um, contracts division uh, led by Michael Visconti with support of Patrick Chung and William Kutenoff. Uh, and and uh, lots of folks from uh, Aon, uh, we have a great Medicare consultant that's working with us, and uh, they were able to successfully release the Medicare RFP on um, yesterday, on Wednesday. So that's, that is a huge accomplishment, um, much more work to be done, but there was a, a real team effort in getting it launched. So much appreciation to the entire team for that effort. I think that's all I have, unless you have questions. Well, I, I want to go back to the United Healthcare UCSF Medical Group situation, and uh, this board gave you uh, full authorization, Abby, to pursue, prod, prompt, promote, and encourage the parties to uh, come to a resolution on that. And I'm very pleased that you have exercised. Uh, your prerogative uh, where possible, and I would encourage you to continue to do so. Are there other comments or? I just want to applaud all your efforts once again um, for the department, you and the department, on the um, health equity, um, diversity, and inclusion. Um, I think you are leading the way. There are misconceptions that sort of uh, equality of benefits <coughs> equals equity, and it does not. Equity is outcomes, and we know that outcomes for vaccinations and screening for cancer and dental care and all these things are different from a variety of social factors. And so equity is the right word. And, and this board, as well as Health HSS, has been very interested from all of our vendors in how they uh, address equity issues, outcomes, not just benefits, but how uh, equity, uh, it gets, those benefits translate into equity for, for all in all these areas. And so I want to, again, uh, applaud you and, and the department for the, the work in these areas. This is, you know, very popular, quote unquote, but still misunderstood. This feeling is that if everyone has the same employer and the same access to benefits, then what's the question here? And there's a big question, and the board recognizes that and affirm the work that you and, and uh, your department is doing. Thank you. 
Are there other board comments on the director's report? Hearing none, we'll now take public comment. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting in WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment and no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now go to item seven. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number seven, SFHSS financial report as of October 31st, 2023. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Iftikhar Hussein, SFHSS chief financial officer. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Happy to report that our, our trust fund balance is uh, stable. The results are similar to what we had mentioned uh, last year, and this is after a year in which we had really high claims and high expenses. Um, so we do see the numbers stabilizing. The trust fund balance we're projecting for the end of the year is about 93 million. It is a decrease, about 11.5 million, but that decrease is really due to the stabilization and reduction in rates uh, funded by the seller settlement we got last year. So we actually use those buy rates down, which causes the rates, uh, which causes the ending balance to drop. Um, the net claims are running pretty close to what we expected. Uh, we did receive some pharmacy rebates in October. We are at six million, five point eight million this um, this year through October. We expect that to be fifteen million by the end of the year and um, um, uh, interest income consistent with last year. The sustainability fund, we're uh, expecting a net use of 1.2 million uh, by the end of the year. And in the general fund, we are running um, you know, ahead of plan, uh, mainly due to vacancies. Um, and lastly, on the audit, uh, we, uh, the external audit is complete and the, um, the benefit trust audit uh, of our health plans uh, is ongoing. Are there questions from the board regarding the financial report? I would just, uh, Commissioner Follins, I would just urge everyone to look at your excellent graphics um, that are incl included in the, in the full packet. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, to me, this net claims item to me is still very concerning. Uh, a, the fact that um, the claims for dental care are still remain consistently low yeah. is not reassuring to me um, because I do believe that dental care is important and that this backfires and there's no doubt that poor dentition contributes to other issues, uh, screening for certain kinds of cancers, for example. Heart disease and, and gum disease are related. And so the fact that we, our net claims sort of zero out um, because members are not utilizing dental is not a good sign to me. And likewise, the fact that our medical claims still exceed, you know, the um, revenues, you know, still points to the ongoing and future problems. And so everyone should be really familiar with these graphs and the fact that the trends are not really changing to my mind, at least to my review, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the trends still seem to be, you know, in both areas sort of in concerning directions. 
Yeah, so the, so the medical claim trend has moderated over what we saw last year. Yeah. Uh, but it is, um, for the first four months, it is running higher than what we had expected. Yes, but the dental claims, you're right, is a pretty consistent trend. Are there other questions or comments from the board of the chief financial officer? He survived the audit in good shape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if there's nothing else from the board, we'll now take public comment on the financial report. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are three callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now move to item eight. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number eight, report on open enrollment activities for plan year 2024. This is a discussion item. It will be presented by Ray Guillen, Chief uh, Operations Officer, Jessica Shi, Communications Director, Olga Stavinskia Velasquez, Operations Manager, and Carrie Bashir's Wellbeing Manager. I would like to welcome the Chief Operating Officer and his team back. They are still standing. They look well after open enrollment, uh, no harm uh, for all of the hard work that I know that the, he and his team have done during this past month uh, to not only get a report ready, but to do all of the stuff that you're going to outline today. Uh, it's a very, very intensive process, and I have marveled at the way you have uh, transitioned into this role for the second year to take this on, uh, you and your team. So thank you on behalf of the membership. Well, thank you, President Scott and commissioners. Uh, again, Ray Guillen, Chief Operating Officer for the Health Service System. And over the next several minutes, select members of our management team and I will prov provide you with a summary of the activities from the just completed open enrollment period for plan year 2024. During our presentation, we will review the purpose of open enrollment, the specific objectives that were set for this year, a reminder of the population that we do serve, highlights from this year's experience as well as our project plan, our communication efforts, and the work performed specifically by our enterprise systems and analytics team. We will also provide a report out of our member services results, our results of some of our key initiatives, the success of our health fairs and our flu clinics, and we'll also preview some of the early uh, enrollment results with you. So as a reminder, the reason that we hold an open enrollment period every year is to keep our cafeteria plan in compliance with Section 125 of the um, Internal Revenue Code. Um, the cafeteria plan is what allows us to um, have active members pay for their health benefit premiums on a pre-tax basis. However, the specific timing of open enrollment is set to allow our staff enough time to process all the plan changes submitted by our members. This year, we scheduled open enrollment to run for a full four-week period um, from Monday, October 2nd through Friday, October the 27th. 
And then again, just as a reminder, open enrollment is the one time each year that members can enroll in, change or waive their coverage, and add or drop dependents without a qualifying life event. As this board is aware, certain portions of our retiree populations will experience significant premium increases beginning January 1st, 2024. In addition to ensuring that we are clearly communicating these impacts to our effective members and also being prepared to handle a possible increase in the volume of calls that may result, we also set some important goals for ourselves this year. First, we wanted to improve accuracy. Unfortunately, during the last open enrollment period, there were a few um, errors in our communications that required us to send correction letters to some of our members. This year, we wanted to strive to avoid both the cost and effort that's required by such corrections. Second, given our large membership and limited staff, we wanted to drive, to, uh, drive our members to our website and to other communication channels to get their questions answered and hopefully eliminate the necessity for them to call member services. And finally, we always have a, as our goal um, the, the effort to reduce costs. Communicating to our membership and providing assistance to them is a huge undertaking. HSS membership exceeds 79,000 um, subscribers and is broken up over four employer groups, the city, the courts, the school district, and the community college district, as well as all the retirees. Adding to the complexity of the job is a variety of union agreements, pay statuses, and payroll frequencies. We just wanted to highlight before we get into the details, some of the, um, uh, the outcomes and um, um, so we want to highlight some of the um, things that we uh, were able to accomplish this year. Uh, the, one of the major accomplishments that we're able to um, do is to reopen our office to in-person support. And so we had a variety of our members join us in the office and we were happy to provide them in-person support. One of our overarching goals um, is always to meet the members where they are. And so we, do, we are aware that some of our members are not comfortable in reaching out to us over the phone. Sometimes they have um, communication limitations. Other times they just want to get something um, resolved face-to-face -face with our staff. And so we happily reopened our office uh, for the first time since the pandemic. In addition, um, due to continued challenges with hiring, we did bring in the support and of, uh, with the offsite call center to help answer some of our member calls. In addition, we were still able to support a number of in-person activities this year, including 10 health fairs and 24 flu shot clinics. We answered over 6,500 calls from our members, and we also supported the uh, long-term viability of, of our HealthNet Canopy Care Plan by helping increase the membership by 82%. And we'll go into more detail in, for each of these items in later slides. As this board knows, planning for open enrollment, it requires year-round planning. We also take <coughs> into account a very detailed project plan to make sure nothing falls through the 
cracks. Unfortunately, Brian Rodriguez, who is our project planner, was not able to be here today, um, but we um, do rely on Brian to make sure that we are staying on track and make sure that everything goes um, off without a hitch. This year's project plan included over 280 tasks with every division being involved. We generally meet once a week and to ensure that we keep on track and are resolving potential issues as soon as possible. Next, I'd like to introduce Jessica Shi, who is our capable, capable communications director to walk through the, this year's open enrollment communications with you. Thank you, Ray. Good afternoon, commissioners. Jessica? Jessica. Yes. Could you bring the microphone just a little lower? There you are. Yes, for my height. It almost looks like you're trying to eat it. <laughs> Good afternoon, commissioners. My name is Jessica Shee. I'm the communications director at the health service system, and I'm going to walk you through our communications for open enrollment this year. And I would say the best, if I had to choose one word to describe our communications, it's really um, it was a transformative year for us. I think under our new leadership, Reagan, and our chief operating officer, who has a very keen eye, um, he observed some inconsistencies in our materials. So we actually, my colleague and I, actually worked together to completely overhaul the communications. We rewrote the member guides. You'll probably see completely different looking rate sheets this year. We had new envelopes. And, um, and we even combined some guides because we realized that the information from MEA, Superior Courts, and CSF were essentially the same. So we combined them into one guide to really streamline our information. And we didn't actually increase the pages in the guide because uh, we were able to reduce some of the information. We looked at our member call data and call drivers and made sure that we added clarity where it was needed to our guide and we reduced superfluous information. And I really want to thank my colleague, um, Ryan Klaus, who's our graphic designer. He did an amazing job. We're completely inspired by our digital accessibility and inclusion standards mandate. And so we brought a lot of the icons into the, the design elements of our guide, and you'll see it throughout the guide. You'll see it throughout the guide um, so that visually people will understand like, oh, this is the vision page and this is the dental page. So we hope that you were able to see then the materials that were mailed to you. And as Ray mentioned, we really worked hard to improve accuracy in our print materials. And it seems a little counterintuitive, but we were able to accomplish this by increasing the number of letter templates we created. So last year we had like 22 which was already a lot of different letter templates for us to manage. This year we had 87. And what we did was we hard-coded the rates on the back of um, each of the open enrollment letters. This way we didn't have to have more data that was provided through printers, which could cause some errors. And so we didn't have to issue any um, correction letters this year, which I am thrilled. <laughs> And as always, I think we learned a lot during the pandemic and that we always want to meet our members where they're at. So during the pandemic, you remember we started doing webinars, we started offering health plan office hours, and we continue that even though, and of course now we're offering in-person health fairs and all the flu clinics, which Carrie's team has continued to do throughout the pandemic. And we like offering all these different avenues of support for our members to provide them education so they can understand the benefits and make those elections. And as is always our goal, we, um, we are 
as city employees, we are all stewards of, for the environment. And so we wanted to reduce paper waste and reduce our print costs. So this year, we consulted with um, our city attorney and determined what was really necessary to be in the mailers. And for active employees, they actually didn't receive booklets. Instead, we drove them to our online uh, web pages to have more comprehensive resource and information for everyone to. Um, oh, and also, we wanted to make sure they knew about their, the events that were happening. And so what we learned was we didn't actually receive many requests from members saying, hey, I, I want my benefits guide. Um, it seems like the online resources was enough information for them to participate and learn about their benefits. So we might even pilot it next year uh, with our retirees. Would you repeat that? <laughs> we are considering carefully uh, contemplating um, re removing the booklets and the retiree mailers. And there, now you have to remember, everyone, every member still has a right to ask for a printed guide. And they're always welcome to call us, and we will mail one to them. Thank you. Having uh, been, uh, am currently a retiree of a very large organization in the state, I wish you every success in making that transition. <laughs> Thank you. We will. We will do our best to make sure that our retirees uh, get the information they need to make the decisions that are best for them. And now I, I'd like to hand up. Yes. You know, can I ask follow up on that as well? Um, and I realize that you know I'm sort of a unique um, recipient of all these materials because I've never been an employee or a retiree of the uh, city or any of our um, employers. Um, but I never find I don't find an op option to opt out of mailings. So I get, you know, appropriate mailings and I was quite impressed with them. But I would like to be able to, you know, to let you know that I would like to opt out in the future and just get it online. And I don't know, was there, was there a box that I missed to opt out or would that be something that might help facilitate a transition as you in, include new groups such as retirees? No, that's that's something that we have been discussing internally is how do we create a, a system that because a lot of the information on open enrollment letters is personal and private data. So how do we create a secure system for people to be able to access information? So we're, we're still working on that. But that's a great question. I guess the question, so the follow-up was that... No, oh, yeah, no, you haven't missed anything. There's no opt-out option. Right, no, we I, are I gather that. Required. So thank you. Yeah, we're I guess the question required. is then, do the employees who've been you know, not getting the printed, is the, are, do all of them use their SFGov email address? Is that the way that you can guarantee sort of confidentiality through the internal system, whereas retirees and all that don't have access to that anymore? Is that part of the complication? that you know, my account through a different server may not be as secure as what SFGov provides? Well, well one, SFGov isn't all employee email right. addresses. There's also USD, which we don't have right. access to, PUC, Superior Court. Right. There's a lot of email addresses right. we don't have access to. And I think when we consulted our city attorney, there were certain um, legal requirements, legal documents that we have to guarantee sort of um, that members receive, and one way to do that is to send, send it to them via U.S. mail. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And now and I'd yes, like to Commissioner Savansky has a question, I oh, believe, yes. for comment. Thank you. Yes, um, I'd like to know how you're going to inform, especially our retiree group, 
with regard to the fact that they won't be receiving the booklet? No, she's it, she didn't say won't be, and I, I want to correct that. I want her to repeat what she said, and would you repeat it again? We are considering piloting it. I, Thank you. I understand that, <laughs> and I'd like to know how you anticipate communicating with this specific membership group um, with regard to that if you, if you make that decision because we have a lot of members who do not have email, mm -hmm. they do not have Wi-Fi, they don't have a cell phone, um, and especially um, we have a number of retirees who are quite elderly, um, but many who are not um, technically savvy, and I have great concern about this because I get a lot of those calls on a regular basis, and when I go and meet with um, these various retiree groups, I hear about it. Um, and so I'm very concerned that we have a good communication, um, that they get the opportunity to at least um, let you know how they feel about it or how they would get that information in advance if they don't have other options for electronic, you know, um, for getting materials electronically. Thank you so much, Commissioner Zvansky. That's certainly something we're going to take into consideration. And for those members, we'll most likely continue to mail them the materials. Or they can always call us and request a full printed guide, in which case they'll have more comprehensive information. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Are there any other comments or questions for communications? Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you, President Scott. Now I'd like to turn it back to our Chief Operating Officer, Ray Gian. Thank you, Jessica. Again, Ray Gian, Chief Operating Officer for the Health Service System. And just going back to that last question, just to be clear, all members did receive a mailer in, um, sent to them via U.S. mail. They receive a compre comprehensive open enrollment statement that shows what their current elections are and what the premium cost for those current elections would be, as well as the other options available to them for the next year. What we did remove from the active um, mailer um, for active employees was the shortened open enrollment booklet, which highlighted some of the changes for the, the next year. Um, what we are seeing with those booklets, number one, they are very expensive to produce as we try to keep up with the city's mandates for use of recycled paper and things of that nature. Um, but what we also found is the vast majority of members just want the current information about their current benefits, what they cost now, what they cost in the future, and don't really rely on those booklets uh, much at all. Um, in addition, in those mailers, we also include what Jessica was referring to as legally mandated notices that we send to each and every member. And so it's still a pretty comprehensive guide and booklet. It just does not include that printed summary booklet that we've historically included but have continued over the years to shorten. Um, and so now we currently have two um, printed materials a member booklet, which is just a summary, and then our full member guide, which has all the information. We do feel that at some point, if an employee is making a, or a retiree is making considerations to make a change, they should actually be referring to that full member booklet, which has all the relevant information in there, so that we're trying to po point employees, both active and retirees, to that booklet as kind of the single source of truth for what their benefit options are in future years. And so we will take that into account when we consider possible changes for the future. 
Thank you. Um, going to bet, back to ESA, our enterprise system analytics um, efforts. Unfortunately, Rin Coleridge, our ESA director, is not able to be here today. She's performing her civic duty and has been selected to be on a jury for the next two months. And so we are oh. trying to do what we can to continue on in Rin's absence and giving some of her staff some additional uh, responsibilities to build up the strength of her team. Um, ESA is responsible for basically all the technology go that goes into making open enrollment run, and it is a huge lift every year. Each year, the ESA team needs to update all our systems to account for rate changes and any changes in administrative processes. Speaking of rates, there's over 3,900 different rate calculations that need to be um, calculated every year. And this is, again, due to the large number of employer groups that we have, as well as a variety of union agreements. Um, most of those rates um, in the past have needed to be calculated manually. Um, later in this presentation, we're going to be talking about an exciting new initiative um, to automate that task. So stay tuned for that. In addition, um, ESA worked diligently to work through both the technical um, connections necessary and both the data security uh, protections that need to be put in place for our new um, offsite call center that we utilize this year. Speaking of the ESA um, rate calculations, um, we are really uh, we're excited to kick off a new project uh, working hand in hand with our finance team um, to develop a new premium rate calculator using um, SQL Server. Um, RIN uh, developed the data requirements um, to provide to the selected contractor to build a comprehensive computer program to hopefully calculate those 3,900 premium rates each year. Once completed, we're hoping that um, there will be several benefits, um, automating this, again, manually intensive process, allowing us to get these um, premium rates um, calculated earlier to aid in our communication efforts, and probably most importantly, decreasing the chance of error. This year, the contractor developed the program while our team calculated the rates manually, um, hopefully to provide the side-by-side -side comparison to see where continued work needs to be done. So now I will uh, turn it over to Olga Stemiskaya Velasquez to go over our member services results. Good afternoon, President Scott, Commissioners, Olga Stemiskaya Velasquez, Operations Manager, Health Service System. I'm honored today to discuss the accomplishments and challenges that member services division um, encountered during this open enrollment. But before we delve into the details, let's begin with a quick summary of the member activities for plan year 2024. As we can see, uh, we have a slight increase in members enrolling their dependents into their medical and dental plans compared to 2023. Approximately 4% of our members made adjustments to next year's medical coverage and about 3% made changes to their dental and vision plans. We see a constant uh, with FSA enrollment with a very slight increase from plan year 2023. 
member services staff play a vital role in supporting our members. They determine member and dependent eligibility, process paper applications over 900 during this open enrollment period. They validate thousands of online transactions and provide support in plan selection to our members. During this plan's open enrollment, members, uh, member services manage 6,571 calls with support of our offsite call center. They supported 291 members through virtual consultations, which includes consultations for our retirees that were looking to retire towards the end of this calendar year. We also provided virtual consultations to members who were looking for support on e-benefits and that platform for enrolling during open enrollment. We participated in multiple health fairs and assisted 470 members in person in our lobby. This was a change from last year, and it was a welcome change as staff saw it as kind of a quote unquote back to normal. Predictably, open enrollment related calls accounted for almost 30% of our total call volume with other uh, <coughs> call drivers remaining consistent from month to month. We were concerned with the potential of increase in phone calls during open enrollment with the uh, prospective uh, premium cost increases. However, this concern did not re get realized. In fact, we saw a slight decrease in calls related to open enrollment overall from last year's open enrollment. 2023 was a challenging year for member services. We experienced a significant loss in staff starting in the fall, the winter of 2022, which lasted through September of this year. And even though we were almost fully staffed by uh, October, the new staff were not yet trained on all of the support that they would be providing to our members during open enrollment. To ensure that we would be able to increase, uh, handle the increase in a call volume, that obviously happens op during open enrollment, we went through the Civil Service Commission seeking approval to, con to contract with an as-needed offsite call center. The idea was to establish additional agents that would be able to resolve simple open enrollment inquiries while the member services team tended to the complex calls, supported members in person, and focused on processing work streams that are necessary for timely member enrollment. After going through the RFP process, we contracted with our as-needed offsite call center vendor, VSA, Valerie Schlitt and Associates. The VSA call center representative supported members with uh, inquiries around their documents received, received um, uh, requests for document mailings, and general eligibility and enrollment questions. They also supported with scheduling virtual consultations. And as you can see from the data, a significant number of calls during open enrollment were for inquiries that did not require processing, with 4,277 calls of our 6,571 being routed to our off-site call center. The VSA support during open enrollment ramped up very fast. This meant there was limited time for testing and system integration, which did cause some challenges, especially during our first weeks of open enrollment. However, because we were in constant contact with VSA and we were able to review call data performance, we made changes quickly. There is, however, an area where we were not able to create a resolution during open enrollment. One technical issue that still exists is the call center system integration, which resulted in members being on hold for significantly long time, and then those calls were in effect disconnected. 
although this was a major issue and did cause um, cause strain to our members and then was a leading cause of our unanswered calls, we did attempt to address it in several ways. <coughs> we had multiple mitigation strategies. First, VSA was able to identify some of these calls and they were able, their team was able to call the members in those situations back within one hour to be able to reconnect and support them um, with their inquiries. The second mitigation strategy was for HSS to uh, reserve back two of our major queues, one for retirees and one for our active members around enrollment, so that the re we reduced the number of calls that were sent over to VSA. This, however, did increase our total number of voicemails received, but VSA was able to help support us in that as well by calling back the members that left voicemails. The goal was to be able to connect with the members that were connecting with us, even though their first experience was not the was not fully completed. And our third strategy in resolving this issue uh, is a shared use agreement, which would put VSA and HSS on the same AT&T platform with an understanding from VSA that it will eliminate this technical challenge. Although this solution has not yet been implemented, there are complexities with contractual review. We are still pursuing it. We will, however, be uh, pausing our contract with uh, VSA starting January uh, 1st, as is um, per our contract. But we do want to attempt to resolve this issue before the contract end in the event that we are going to re-engage VSA um, in support for the future. And as we proceed to 2024, our commitment continues to remain focused on process improvements with an emphasis on customer service excellence and creating a lasting impact on both operational efficiency and satisfaction with our service. I will now pass on the presentation to Carrie Bashirs, our well-beings manager. Before Thank you, you do that, uh, in case there are some questions from the board. Absolutely. Yeah, I have a couple of questions. One is how were calls diverted um, to, between the, the you know, HSS staff and VSA? Was it you know, after hours went to VSA? So was it 24 seven um, accessibility or what was the mechanism? Sure, great question. Uh, uh, VSA supported us during our regular business hours, and so the way that they we uh, divvied up the calls was they we've identified three different queues that would be transitioned over to VSA. We identified those queues specifically that did not require any actual processing, while the HSS team held on to the queues that required more complex review of cases and pr actual processing of work. And so VSA. Uh, basically supported us with uh, inquiries where uh, members self-selected that they were looking to confirm receipt of documents or they were requesting us to mail documents to them and general eligibility questions that would otherwise be, oh, answers would be uh, obtained through our website or through the member rules. While HSS, we retained uh, cues that were targeted towards pay making payments, and access to care uh, questions that maybe uh, the members may be having. So members had an opportunity to self-select a queue. We also had them divided into uh, active and retiree members to be able to track the volume from each. Can I follow, sorry, yes, follow up again, Commissioner Paulson? So that's, I think it's very interesting, and, and thank you for your answer. If my memory's correct, from the slide that looked at the amount of time on the call with the two, you know, uh, options, HSS versus VSA. VSA was a couple of minutes longer uh, on on call time. 
so which suggests that maybe um, either it, well, they weren't, the complexity was more than anticipated, so it took longer, or that the VSA staff still hadn't been quite, uh, you know, facile enough to deal with what were thought to be simple questions, or that the members, when they called, you know, didn't really quite understand, you know, uh, where their calls were going to go, or, or had multiple issues. You know, sometimes you get asked, you know, to make a selection, and you actually have three issues, and so how do you decide which issue to hit? And so were they misdirected in that regard? So these, this is a really complicated issue, and I appreciate your sort of delving into it um, and hope you know, for success in the future. I guess the last question I have is, did members know who was they were talking to, that they were talking to HSS staff or VSA staff? No, members didn't know. We tried to make a seamless process for them so that they knew they were contacting us because the trust is built in HSS. We provided as much training as we were able to do for our uh, offsite call center for VSA, and they were always in contact with me should any additional questions come up that they may not have, that we may have missed uh, providing them training on. But it was a very um, kind of integrated process for in our communication, and we supplied uh, qu quite a bit of training for them so that it's a seamless process from the member's perspective. Okay, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, you know, I think that it's a, it's a tough question. Um, dealing with other vendors outside of HSS, not always knowing who one is speaking to or who's visiting the house. Are they employees of the company that's supposed to be visiting the house, or are they vendors uh, who don't have the same sort of ownership to the issue? And so I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I'll leave that for the staff to sort of address in terms of transparency uh, to make sure that all members get equal access to HSS staff when appropriate. Absolutely, and we actually did have a process to be able to do that. So should there have been a situation um, like you've identified where members were calling about an issue that had multiple um, items to it, VSA staff actually did transfer those over. There were either escalations to our supervisor team or they were then direct escalation or transfers to our team to be able to address. So they had the opportunity, to, or the VSA team had the opportunity to um, triage and get them to the appropriate party. All right, thank you. Commissioner Zavansky. Thank you. Um, I agree with uh, Commissioner Follinsby and those concerns, but what I notice is that there, um, or should I ask, did you track calls that were lost? We did track the calls that were lost, and those were the ones where our first mitigation strategy was to have VSA actually call back the folks that were lost. Um, Oftentimes what does happen is that when we are looking to reach out to them, they're no longer available. And we absolutely understand that that was a challenge during this open enrollment. And did you have, um, in some cases, um, where you couldn't call back because you couldn't access their numbers? A lot of times people have their, their phone numbers blocked. blocked. Understandable. Yeah, yes, that w w could have happened, yes. But do you know how many I don't know how many were not called back. Okay. Um, I, I would appreciate it when we do this in the future that um, we include some of that as well. It's, it's good to know, and it, it might um, give us some more options in terms of what else we might be able to do to get to those members. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I just have a general question. This is the first time that we've used, quote, an outside vendor to support this aspect. 
do you think that it met minimally or maximally or kind of okay or no we won't do this again or we need to do further work so how would you assess the result overall for what I can this say effort? is that we would not have been able to meet our members needs if we did not have this contract all right because of our low staffing at the time and so even though it might not have been the excellent experience that we we're expecting to have for our members, we we're at least able to connect with them and provide them with, uh, with a level of support. So it, we would not have been able to do that without the VSA contract. All right, thank you. So it's, there's more work to be done. Yes. And you're saying that uh, you, you wouldn't have been able to do what you were able to accomplish during this open enrollment period without this vendor, That's is that correct? correct? Okay, yes, uh, Director Yang. Yeah, I just wanna commend the entire team for putting this solution together because it was, it was a big challenge to put it together and um, it was a, a great effort. Um, we had a lot of support from the Department of Technology. Um, I just spoke with Linda Gorell yesterday who is um, retiring from the Department of Technology, but she, uh, she was very impressed with how this all came together in a rather short period of time, and it, it really did provide a service that was quite remarkable. I think in addition to it, there's uh, many unintended uh, benefits uh, from that relationship, and I think Olga and her team have really come together on understanding, I, I liken it because of my background, to running an ER. <laughs> you know, you've got to be able to, to, to flex, you've got to be able to triage, you've got to be able to pe people get to the right place at the right time, and, and that way of thinking and doing business is now embedded in member services in a new way. Um, so I, I think it's been a fabulous relationship. It did not, it was not perfect, um, but the effort that went into it, real time, live, the ongoing learning and putting into place new procedures was just remarkable. Um, so I, I would really like to, to commend the group uh, for being able to um, pull this off uh, in, in a very effective uh, way. And um, I, just congratulations to the team. And thank you and the team for all that you've done during this season. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Carrie, please come forward. <laughs> all right. Good afternoon, President Scott and Commissioners. Carrie Bashirs, Wellbeing Manager with HSS. I'm here to talk a little bit about flu and our health benefit fairs that we had this year. So first, I wanted to acknowledge on my team, Jalissa <coughs> Nunez. She is the um, one individual that really spearheads up all of these events. Um, naturally, she has support from our team as well. Um, so I'm going to highlight some of the, the things that she did this uh, season with our vendors, uh, with our partners, and some of the hours that she put in herself to make this happen. So I'm gonna start with highlighting that she manages about 16 vendors. So we have 10 uh, health, health benefit fairs, and then obviously we have our flu clinics and some there is a, a partnership between many of those. So managing 16 vendors can be quite challenging as you know, um, but she pulled it off excellent this year. Uh, there was also about 35 communication materials that were uh, developed just for these events, which obviously we partner very closely with Jessica and her team on. And then it's about nine months of, of planning. I know we, we kind of joke internally about open enrollment starting in January and just never stopping. And it kind of does um, for us, but also with flu and the health 
the health fairs, it is a very strong nine-month period um, in which uh, Jalissa tried to quantify her hours, but at least 1400, over 1,400 hours that she's dedicated to making these events happen. So I wanted to highlight that. Go next slide. So I'll start by focusing on our open enrollment events, or I'm sorry, our health fair events. So we did a total of 10 this year. Um, we maintain that same number year over year. Um, we continue to offer two clinics at the airport. One is an evening clinic that does target a different population, which we have found to be very successful um, year over year. Uh, we also, I, although it's not in on my highlights here, we do also continue to offer our benefit fair uh, over at Hetch Hetchy. We also find this to be very valuable. We partner that with our flu clinic as well. And this year we were able to continue to bring in our vendors on site, which we know is very helpful for the, that population. Some of our main focus areas and how we target is we look at where we're we gonna pull in the masses or where we're we gonna pull in the people who naturally are you know, on the ground, not always in an office setting. And so oftentimes we'll target those different maintenance yards or like a Hetch Hetchy so we can gather in a lot of folks for these fairs so they can get the information that they need. One of our best practices that we started uh, two years ago, or actually when we first started doing our benefit fairs, was doing a pre-planning call with all of our vendors. It really allows Jalissa and our vendors to get on page of what are their expectations, where do they need to go, who are their site contacts, so that we continue to offer. This year, we also invited some of our other partners to attend the events. Uh, particularly, we invited our external EAP CompSych, who, uh, as you may know or have heard, have expanded their services to our first responder departments, but they continue to serve our entire employee population. We also brought Lighthouse, which is the first responder wellness app that we recently transitioned from a different vendor. Um, and then we also had some of our uh, MHN partners as well, specifically through HealthNet, HealthNet attend these, um, more specifically for the first responder locations as well. And then last, we've uh, had a partnership with Credible Mind. I'm sure you may have heard us speak about it. It's an online tool that, that provides a lot of resources around mental health and emotional well-being. And they also came on site to a lot of our uh, locations. <coughs> and I'll shift into our flu clinics. So this year, we hosted 24 locations, um, 24 flu clinics at 23 locations. Again, that 23, we just tend to do two at the Department of Emergency Management to target their early morning folks. Uh, we had 10 open clinics. Those are, again, our clinics in which anyone have the opportunity to join, no access issues, uh, generally open to, say, we, we say the public, but really anybody can get in um, as long as they're a member. 14 restricted locations. Uh, we had one location that we did not offer last year due to low participation. We have uh, minimums that we need to meet for our clinics, so every year we assess, are we meeting those, how far are we not meeting those? And so we did bring back the PUC's Sonol Clinic this year. Uh, there was a lot of interest because, again, they're, they're a little further out, uh, not so close into the city. We administered uh, just over 2,000 vaccines this year. I, I did want to note that that is about 10.5% lower than last year. And although I wish I could say it's because we didn't offer the same number of clinics. The one clinic that we didn't offer this year had very low participation. So we don't have a lot of data that's really showing us why that might have happened. I mean, we, we kind of know what we are hearing, uh, which is really all over the map. It could be anything from people who are in a hybrid schedule. They're not in the office that day. We've been hearing a lot of messaging around vaccination fatigue. 
Um, so again, we don't know exactly why, but every year our goal is to go up, up, up. Um, unfortunately, this year we did not go that route. And, and I'm sure amongst other uh, factors is the fact that there are more vaccines available in different venues than there used to be even three to four years ago. You go to any drugstore, the supermarket, what have you, and so people, you know, where we used to be health plan provider or employer-based uh, as a primary sor source of vaccinations, there are many more sites out there now, and so that too may be impacting what you're seeing. Right. right. Which is a good thing. Yes, right? I'm, easy, I'm not decrying yeah. it, but <laughs> that yeah. may be the reason, part of the reason as well. Yeah, very much so. I think it would also, if I could comment yeah, as well. Sure. I mean, Always you know, there's been a lot. There's a lot of public service messaging around, mm -hmm. you know, flu season, but you know, the adding RSV and COVID, it, frankly, is sometimes is confusing to the public um, because you can only offer flu when people are somehow tuned into RSV because there's now a vaccine available for certain subgroups, you know, uh, adults for RSV, and the pediatric, you know, vaccine was in short supply. So, I mean, again, this is very confusing to people. So I don't, I think that this, some of the low participation may just be not only vaccine fatigue, but also information overload. Like, what am I, how am I going to prioritize this? Um, and so I, you know, I applaud all your efforts. <laughs> Regardless. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And the good news is we are getting people vaccinated either yes. way. So that's great. Yeah. Um, some of our best practices, we do continue to offer our clinics into mid-November. Um, we, we closed it a little earlier this year, and generally that was just by nature because it made more sense um, in where our locations were interested. <coughs> We also continue to partner with Kaiser Permanente, who over the last two years, this is now our third year, uh, utilized their third-party vendor, Albertson Safeway, so we continue to partner there. And then a few new things that we added this year is Dr. Fiona Wilson, who's our medical uh, director officer for the city, uh, attended a couple of our events. She had found this to be successful in some of the COVID pop-ups they were doing, that it's like a ask the doctor and a lot of people were approaching her, asking her questions. We were not able to do COVID vaccines this year with the flu, so it allowed her to be able to answer any questions that could arise um, for both vaccines. And then a new change this year, which generally impacted just our Kaiser members, uh, is uh, self-reporting. So generally in the past, anybody who was a Kaiser member, their flu vaccine information would be directly put into their medical record. Anyone else would have to take an image. This year, all of the participants who engaged would needed to take an image in order to put that information into their own medical record. And that concludes flu. And open enrollment benefit fairs. Questions? Are there other questions for Terry? Uh, Commissioner Zavansky. Yeah, thank you. Um, because I know that there have been a lot of um, shots available of both types in the communities that San Francisco has been very active, but also mm -hmm. down the peninsula, East Bay, um, where we have um, a lot of active members living as well, but a lot of retirees. And, and I see it because I've been involved with some of those. Um, I'm wondering, um, God, what am I wondering? Um, oh, I'm wondering if if we have been, if health service has been involved with any of those community options or if, if we know that those are pretty much run by the communities and 
the pharmacies, because um, I think even private pharmacies were giving, are still giving um, shots as well. Um, and having the, the shopping centers like Albertsons and Safeway available uh, present many options for, for people as well. But have we been involved with any others? No, we do not do any direct partnerships with the community locations. We do provide information through our materials and online for where someone can go get vaccinated outside of our worksite flu clinics. So it's yeah. really any self-reporting if, if that goes for Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, right. But I just wanted to mention that I think um, there's been, at least in the immediate Bay Area, a great expansion of options available to get these shots, and it's still ongoing. Um, and a lot of education going along with it. So thank you. Thank you very much, Carrie, for all that you've done during thank this you. period and your team. Thank you. I'll turn it back over to Ray. Again, Ray Guillen, Chief Operating Officer for HSS. Um, knowing that we're going to be presenting you with much of the following information, both in our demographic and annual reports in the coming months, um, I just briefly wanted to share with you some information that we learned um, after processing our open enrollment transactions. Um, first, um, open enrollment applications submitted electronically still remains very high. So we're currently at 88% of all open enrollment applications submitted through eBenefits, our online um, benefit system. Um, we'll never get to 100%, and that's because some transactions um, will not be um, processed through the system due to kind of overlap in transactions. So for new hires, for example, if they have a new hire event sitting out there, they cannot have a second open enrollment event open at the same point in time. So for those members, we have to collect paper applications. And so also for members transitioning from active to retiree status, similar situation where we'll need to collect those applications via paper. Um, so we'll never get to 100%, but we always strive to increase that number because it does reduce the complexity on our staff processing those applications. When we look at the medical plan enrollment um, for our active employees, there weren't any major shifts with the distribution between the different plans. Um, the one notable exception, again, was with our Health Net Canopy Care Plan. Um, this year, again, we increased membership in that plan by 50%. Again, this is leading to a more sustainable plan uh, as long as they get that base enrollment up. But again, um, no significant enrollment. We do see an increase in um, enrollments from um, last year to this year. That's primarily driven by an increase in employees during our reporting period. So again, for our pre-open enrollment data, that information is based upon the data that we pulled for our open enrollment letters in late August. And so the post-open enrollment data that we're looking at is for after we process that the uh, open enrollment applications, which is um, mid to late November. And therefore, we just had a number of new hires in um, the city workforce during that period of time. So that increase in enrollment is not indicative of anything other than that increase in overall membership. Um, this next slide shows kind of the medical en enrollment migration for our retirees, but I do think if we move to the next slide, it will help if we look at um, the separation between early retirees and uh, Medicare retirees. And so 
the one thing that we wanted to keep an eye on was um, knowing that there were some significant increases in premiums for some of our early retiree members. We wanted to see if there was any potential shift in enrollment due to um, that fact. However, as Olga alluded to earlier, that really did not um, come to fruition. The enrollment stayed pretty stable uh, for our early retiree um, base um, coming out of open enrollment. Again, similar to the, if you go back to that previous slide, um, similar to um, the issue that we saw with active employees where we saw new hires, we do see an overall decrease in the number of non-Medicare retirees. Uh, but again, this is primarily due to that shift between the date we pull the data and the, um, for the pre-open enrollment data and the post-open enrollment data. During that three-month period, we do have a number of early retirees aging into Medicare over that portion of time. And so, again, the decrease in enrollment that you're seeing is primarily due to that uh, issue. And so, um, enrollment stayed very similar. When we look at the Medicare retirees, it's just the opposite. And so, you'll see we increase the Medicare members, but again, it's primarily due to those early retirees aging into Medicare over that three-month period of time. But the enrollment in the plans, even though we were um, fearful of a potential decrease in enrollment due in the United Healthcare Medicare Advantage PPO, um, again, that enrollment did stay um, relatively stable. Here you'll see um, the um, positive enrollment in our HealthNet Canopy Care HMO plan. Uh, we did see a significant increase in lives for um, both when we look at it from a total subscriber base and also um, our total lives basis and also subscribers or enrollee basis. Again, we're seeing a very significant increase in enrollment in that plan again, after we experienced pretty much the same thing last year. So we were very happy to see that in order to maintain the viability of that plan. When we look at dental, um, again, you'll see the same thing as with the medical, an increase in the count for actives, again, attributable to the increase in um, employment during that period of time. Um, the one thing that we are seeing in when we look at both the data for um, um, dental for both uh, actives and retirees is a shift, a, a small shift from the DHMO um, plans to the PPO plans. And so it is noted, again, we have not had a chance to look into that for the reasons for that, but again, we did want to point that out. Go to the next slide. Similar with the vision, again, uh, enrollment stayed pretty stable. Um, and we do apologize, there looks like there's an overlap in the, the data there. But we did see, um, when we look at the vision data, uh, we do see a, also a migration from the VSP basic plan um, to the um, VSP premier plan. Um, and again, the difference between the two is uh, there's no co-payment for um, lenses on the um, premier plan, as well as there's a benefit allowance for things like frames and contacts every year versus every other year. But we do see members moving to that premier plan from the VSP basic. When we look at retirees, very similar story. Again, uh, Roma is pretty stable, but we do see a slight move from the DHMO to the um, PPO dental plan. 
And again, similar enrollment change for the VSP plan for retirees, just members moving from that basic plan to the premier plan. And so with that, that includes our concludes our presentation, and we're here to answer any other questions that you might have. Are there additional questions from the board? Well, again, Ray, on behalf of the board, we thank you and each of the teams in your department for the hard work and diligence that you've displayed again this year uh, in carrying out this process. And well, I do you. thank you for that. It is truly a team effort. Every person in our department plays a very critical role in, in towards the success of open enrollment from the planning on. And so, um, you know, I just thank the entire team for being team players throughout the entire process. So thank you. Okay, thank you. If there are no further comments from the board, we'll now take public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star three to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. No one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, we have three callers on the phone line. Zero callers have entered the public comment queue at this time. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. At this point, <laughs> we are going to take a recess of 10 minutes. <laughs> As I've often said, uh, the mind can comprehend only what the end will endure. <laughs> so we'll take a 10-minute recess at this time. Thank you. GovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
and we're ready. Thank you. We're now going to have a roll call. Thank you, President Scott. Roll call starting with President Scott. Present. Supervisor Dorsey. Present. Commissioner Follinsby. Present. And Commissioner Zvansky. Present. With we that, have we a have quorum. quorum. Thank you. And now we'll move to item number nine, which is board education. Thank you, President Scott. Board, this is agenda item number nine, board education, opportunities for future consideration. This is a discussion item and will be presented by Ann Thompson, senior account executive with Aon, and Mike Clark, lead actuary with Aon. And Mike Good Clark afternoon. with Aon, uh, along with my colleague Ann, uh, will be presenting uh, today. Just as a reminder, uh, before we start, just for background, um, this has been an ongoing uh, education uh, process throughout the um, late summer and fall months and uh, just kind of a reminder of uh, what those 2023 uh, requested topics were and how a lot of what we'll talk about today kind of brings the, uh, the last three discussions uh, into focus for the future. And that is the title of our uh, discussion today, Opportunities for Future Consideration. Uh, we'll go through the uh, just a brief overview of the overall board education modules that commenced in August and conclude today, as well as the key takeaways uh, from the August, September, and November uh, discussions. Uh, the SFHSS strategic goals are embedded throughout uh, the duration of the uh, discussion today, including conversation about driving high value in healthcare that Ann will go through. Uh, opportunities for future consideration that both Ann and I will discuss. And then uh, Ann closing today with concluding thoughts on takeaways from today's discussion and a preview of some upcoming uh, Health Service Board education discussions that will occur in early 2024. So as a reminder, the modules uh, commenced in August with just a broad uh, review of the health uh, ecosystem and just a preview of uh, what transpired from September to December. Uh, September focusing on market and health system innovation, November on benefit design benchmarking, and plan design influence on member plan use behavior. And with that, taking all that information, uh, talking through opportunities for future consideration today. Page five uh, reviews some of the key takeaways uh, from those prior three modules. So from a health ecosystem overview uh, standpoint, certainly the complexity and everything that we um, see in healthcare and how those complexities drive up spend and how that spend increases with age and advancing needs for those with chronic conditions. So that underlies a lot of what we see in our existing trend environment along with macroeconomic forces that drive up healthcare trend, things like labor shortages uh, in the healthcare environment, wage and supply costs, uh, what's happening with specialty pharmacy, and deteriorating physical and mental health. Uh, we pivoted in September to review market and health system innovation, uh, which key takeaways included evolving uh, dynamic vendor ecosystem, a lot of point solutions in the space who focused on unmet needs uh, from health plans, including navigation, well-being, equity, and affordability, and a lot of new entrants uh, to care delivery. Uh, for instance, the alignment that Blue Shield will have starting in 2025 uh, with the Mark Cuban Cost Plus uh, drug organization 
the alignment of Amazon with One Medical, uh, delivering primary care as well as virtual care. And then last month, we spent uh, our time talking through benefit design benchmarking, you know, assessing the S of HSS uh, plan designs relative to what we see both in the broad uh, employer and public sector marketplace across the country, as well as specifically in California public sector, and how that plan design influences member use behavior. You know, we found copay-based plans have increased uh, the spend as prices have increased significantly. You know, there are differentials within the SFHSS plan designs uh, between the Kaiser co-payments, which are generally lower than other SFHSS plans. How research has not shown significant impact on behavior uh, with increased point of care, you know, co-pays and co-insurance, obviously, to some, uh, some extent there. The member design features within the SFHSS plans, again, aligned well with other California uh, public sector entities, but richer than uh, national public entities and how utilization has continued to increase as the population ages and those uh, chronic care needs of members increase. To the short person. <laughs> All right, so, sorry. Uh, Ann Thompson, Aon, um, as we think about the future, uh, what kind of went into my mind is that we really wanna drive high value healthcare and we chose those words very carefully that we're not looking for the cheapest, you know, we want the quality, which generally is the less expensive, but that's what's really kind of driving this at the end of the day. And so we see that there's three different kind of components or essential components, there's others um, that go into this. And so the first on the left side um, being improving health outcomes, which we uh, spoke to earlier, Dr. Follinsby, you commented on health equity and really driving outcomes. Um, this combines really closely with that middle um, item about reducing member utilization. And we really wanna do that through better health outcomes. The healthier you are, the less that you need to use the system or use the system when it's, when it's really needed. And that gets into that right-hand side about making sure that care when it's needed is efficient and effective uh, in the care delivery setting. So how do we do that? Uh, on the next page, we. Uh, like I said, combine this improving health outcomes and reducing utilization. And there's several areas, again, we could spend all day on this, but we're not, um, that we wanted to call out uh, as key areas to address as we think about the future. And so preventive care, uh, we, screenings and vaccinations, which we've spoken several times about vaccinations today, which is fantastic. Um, chronic condition management, wellness and well-being. We heard from Carrie and her team um, on all the work that uh, SFHSS is doing, which is fantastic. Um, and then kind of looking at pharmacy and medical device management programs. So we've I don't think we've actually talked about pharmacy recently, maybe last year, um, but we know that there's um, a lot happening in that space. And so we want to um, you know, really make sure we're keeping an eye on um, what's happening in that space. And so again, the ultimate goal is health improvement for a better quality life and utilization um, reduction. When we look at um, efficient and effective care delivery, uh, again, some key areas, uh, primary and virtual care, which we've heard a lot from Executive Director Yant and some of the uh, organizations that she is participating with on primary care, uh, side of care, we've talked about that, you know, making sure that you know, the right level of care is being sought. So, you know, if something that can be done at your primary care, ideally that happens at primary care, 
urgent care versus emergent care. Um, you know, this is an ideal situation. Um, we want to, you know, look at ensuring the right side of care is happening. Uh, we heard a lot two months ago about technology advances and innovation, uh, so keeping an eye on that and how those things can either teach us or um, our initiatives that we want to um, be involved in or engage in, uh, advocacy and navigation, uh, accountable care organizations, which you all have had in place for several years now, and then uh, fraud, waste, and abuse, uh, kind of keeping an active eye on that. So. Uh, those are kind of the key areas and the effective care delivery as we think about the future. And we will then look at future opportunities. <laughs> okay, so leveraging what we, um, what Ann went through on high value healthcare, you know, as we look at the future uh, considerations, certainly promoting use of high quality and low uh, cost care is a big component of that and we'll go through a little bit of information related to the current plans today uh, addressing affordability and sustainability obviously my passion uh, as your actuary and then Anne will uh, lead through some ideas on supporting uh, member health and well-being as well as supporting those with chronic conditions so on page 10 um, you know we we do a lot to look at rates and costs and even in our uh, rate and benefit presentations in May and June, you know, do side by side among the plans. But uh, this is an interesting graphic and credit to Ann for uh, coming up with this to look at the kind of the picture from a standpoint of both network size and level of care management, where if you, if you look at this, these are um, the plans available to active employees and early retirees. And in particular, the dollars you see are the active employee only uh, monthly total cost rates for 2024. And the size of the circle corresponds to the, the member enrollment uh, size for the active employees within each plan. So, you know, that success that we see around delivering high quality and low cost care really comes from encouraging members or, you know, incentivizing them through a combination, perhaps a plan design uh, variation, certainly member contributions to enroll in well-managed plans. Um, you know, we look at Kaiser Permanente, KP at the lower left, um, not with the lowest cost in 2024, although historically they have been the lowest cost plan, it just so happens in 2024, it's the health net canopy care, you know, but that is the largest population size and correlates to you know the probably the highest level of care management you have among the plans uh, within SFHSS and the smaller network you know simply because it's all leveraged through the Kaiser Permanente Medical Group uh, but you can also see HealthNet and TRIO plans kind of fit that mode of high levels of care management um, you know within uh, networks that are more focused uh, on the providers that, uh, in this case, HealthNet through the Canopy Care platform, uh, TRIO through their uh, selected network in the Blue Shield environment are able to deliver to members. You know, Access Plus still delivering a high degree of, of care management, but within the larger network size. And then, you know, the PPO certainly, it's there for individuals who want to select the PPO and certainly for early retirees who live outside of the Bay Area. Um, you know, it is the sole plan, um, but you know, you have a, a less degree of uh, care management and certainly the largest network available. Can I, can I? Uh, Commissioner Follinsby? Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, when I saw the slide in, you know, in the materials, I was confused by it. 
Um, and um, the level of care management was very clear. The network size, though, confused me a bit. And so do we actually know um, the number of providers that our members see in you know, HealthNet versus TRIO versus Access Plus versus KP? Because um, you're right from the standpoint that KP, you know, Kaiser has a much more limited um, provider base. Um, and so, you know, the other plans, you know, so the sky's the limit go out to PPO. When you actually look at what our, who our members are accessing, um, I'm wondering if this is accurate. You know, do our members in the PPO who are paying so much more access that many more providers than, than for example, KP offers? Um, sure. Can you maybe elaborate on this yeah, a little absolutely, bit? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so starting with KP, you know, not all care goes within the Kaiser Permanente Medical right. Group. So the vast majority does, but some care does go outside the network for, let's say, complex care needs that maybe Kaiser isn't equipped to handle. And certainly members have the choice to go out of um, KP for emergency care. Although thankfully, and we do get this information on a quarterly basis from KP, I think well over 90% of emergency room visits um, are happening within the KP environment. And I will say from personal experience, that's not true for some of my other California clients. Um, you know, with HealthNet, the Canopy um, platform are the primary providers. So, you know, thinking about health physicians, John Muir, um, Meritage, um, you know, the partners within HealthNet. Blue Shield actually shares with us on a quarterly basis um, a robust list of the percentage of members aligned with various uh, physician groups in their network. So, you know, Brown and Toland and Hill Physicians are certainly the dominant um, physician groups for your members. You know, within the trio environment, I think they account for, you know, probably 80 to 85% of the total membership. John Muir is also uh, prominent within that trio environment. And then when we look at, and this was you know, part of the discussion we had around um, the variance and in rate increases going into 2024 between Access Plus and Trio, where Access Plus had the higher rate increase, Trio actually a fairly nominal increase, you know, is there opportunity for Access Plus members to consider enrolling in TRIO. Now we saw from the team's information earlier that we didn't see a lot of movement, but about 60% of um, Access Plus members leverage an IPA, you know, independent practice association, so in other words, a physician group, that is also available within TRIO. So um, now the Access Plus also has I would say about one third of members um, affiliated with a Sutter Health or uh, Palo Alto Medical Foundation uh, physician where those physician groups are only available within the Blue Shield plans, you know, within Access Plus or certainly the PPO, but they're not available within the TRIO. Does that help? So I, I'm, I yeah, right it does help, but I think it still <clears throat> begs the question about where our members are getting their care. And are they getting their care with, you know, basically three times more providers and Access Plus than the, K, you know, adjusted for the number of enrollees compared to KP? And it was because my gut feeling is that part of the problem is that we may have more providers in the PPO, let's go to PPO, but that when you look at it, there are only one or two or three providers per member. 
And so when you talk about care management and trying to get messaging out about this, that it becomes, <coughs> it's a little misleading. You know, the PPO, someone looking and say, oh my God, look at the PPO network size is huge. I'm gonna spend the extra money. But where our members are actually getting their care may not be that huge a denominator. So that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, I think I totally agree. Um, you know, at least, and, and part of the PPO network too is also like the Hachachi individuals in you know Sonora accessing the Avena system in Sonora accessing care in the um, out-of-state localities they may be in. But but I agree, I, and I think within the Bay Area itself, there's not going to be a great difference in the um, provider composition and network in the PPO for Blue Shield versus Access Plus. Now there will be then when you you know go access plus to trio. All right, please continue. Yeah, so um, certainly a big focus of Executive Director Yance is uh, and the team is looking at alternative um, payment models and certainly uh, you know as it relates to, to primary care and advanced primary care. Those alternative payment models are to uh, to look to shift away from just a pure fee for service, you know, pay for um, number of services to uh, models that can provide those financial incentives uh, for equitable, high quality, and cost efficient care. We see it today, um, especially within the Blue Shield and HealthNet environments uh, through capitation, uh, physician capitation for the Blue Shield plans, capitation for almost all services in the HealthNet Canopy plan. Um, as well as value-based payments with the ACO partners, um, uh, Hill Physicians, and uh, Brown and Tolan within the Access Plus and Trio plans. But as we look to the future, you know, trying to link the payment models more to quality, uh, they have been historically with Brown and Tolan, but that's it in the Blue Shield environment. Uh, the investment in those advanced primary care initiatives and you know, SFHSS uh, with Aon are talking uh, often to. Uh, the Blue Shield team about how that's progressing uh, within their key ACO partnerships. Payment transparency, uh, the data collection aspect, you know, looking at these uh, variables, which are, you know, fairly, I guess, new to the thinking of um, integrating them into the, the data process, and then integrating uh, information on more of a real-time and actionable basis uh, to support population health management. On this uh, issue of uh, payment transparency, uh, there is some larger effort with, uh, I think it's the Center for Medicare uh, Services around actually having hospitals and other, I guess, larger providers post their, the details of what things cost on a national website is that still moving forward to your knowledge? Yeah, I mean, so there are two CMS initiatives around data transparency. Initially it started, you know, with hospitals and then it's, it's broadened. And in fact, this week there was actually a uh, piece of legislation that passed the House around even more advanced uh, data transparency and we'll see what happens, you know, as the, as the Senate considers it. Um, the, the issue that we're seeing in general is the data set is so large, um, unwieldy. You know, while you may get some compliance, um, it may be, you know, more technical compliance, but not necessarily with a mind to, 
you know, a, a, let's say a system putting that information out there in a very clear and concise and usable way. So um, there's definitely efforts underway by um, data organizations to, I guess, advance the technologies that would allow us um, to have better insights uh, from the data that's been released. Okay. So it's still, it's still a project that's ongoing. It just hasn't Exactly. Maturation yeah. at this point. So, but I mean, it's good that we have these regulations in place, and it's a continual work in progress to kind of get to a point where um, we have more usability hmm. with the information that's required. Okay. Thank you. Uh, from an affordability and sustainability uh, standpoint, um, I think it was last February. You know, we kind of talked through some of these trend mitigation strategies. Uh, that may end up uh, being part of recommendations going into this rates and benefit cycle. Um, you know, these strategies, um, you know, we think of them as ongoing and certainly uh, in collaboration with the health plans uh, that would uh, support the advancement of, the, of these aims. And, you know, most recently we spoke in November about how those periodic plan design feature reviews, you know, is recommended. Uh, to support the overall plan affordability and sustainability. Um, just an example, page 13 is a slide that we shared uh, with you last month, just looking at the uh, levels of annualized increase in certain services, especially on the inpatient hospital side, outpatient surgery side, and the brand uh, prescription drugs, where you know, not, perhaps not coincidentally, these are also the plan design elements that require the least amount of cost sharing uh, through the co-payments for the SFHSS member. You know, just to kind of give you a sense, um, you know, this is what us actuaries do, is if we're looking at alternative plan designs, you know, looking at uh, elements of the plan designs today across your various plans. You know, so you'll see the plans across the top and you'll see uh, examples of particular plan design elements down the side of the page. You know, just kind of what if, what would it look like if we were to consider a particular increment in a plan design feature uh, for each of the given plans? So that's what this is meant to do, is to show you what that possibility is. You know, for some, it's a very modest amount. You know, for some, it could be significant. You know, we're not saying all of these would be recommended and all of these would be, um, you know, brought forth to you, but just as an example, if, you know, all of these increments were applied, uh, it would be close to $18 million. So, um, you know, these there may be some elements of this uh, that we uh, bring to you over the course of the winter and spring uh, months. Mike, could you uh, pause? Are we on this? Are you on page uh, 14? Page 14. Um, uh, that needs there. There you go. Needs there you go. Oh, uh, catch up. All right. Yep, page 14. And just to give you a sense, too, you know, you can see at the bottom of this page, if you look at what's transpired over time, and let's just say hypothetically, if you were to, you know, look to periodically index um, the copayment growth to something, you know, we think of medical CPI, it's a national um, measure of increase in medical costs. It's grown 50% uh, since 2009. So, you know, granted it's a 14 year period here, but it would mean that a $10 copay in 2009 would need to be, you know, 15, uh, for instance, a 2023 to keep pace with inflation. 
And then again, a recent uh, slide uh, just to show, you know, examples, I guess real life examples of uh, recommendations uh, that I made to the board. Uh, just looking at, you know, some Kaiser uh, recommendations uh, for both the 2021 and 2024 plan years. You know, again, just to get a sense of what the financial impact uh, would have been, um, you know, under those uh, particular re recommendations. Can, can I just maybe make a comment yes, again? Commissioner Follows me here. You know, I appreciate your rehash. Your, your, a lot of this is rehashing the data that we've seen, and I think it's very important. Um, I guess that, you know, again, the concern that I have in terms of our messaging is when we talk about in early, one of the early slides, I sort of bristled at the, <coughs> the, the, the balloon that said reducing medical utilization. Um, I think that that probably could be better worded. Uh, maybe something like optimizing healthcare utilization or something. Um, because I think that this idea of minimizing medical utilization, you know, the, the sort of concern is that by minim minimizing early utilization, we are increasing conditions that end up only being managed by brand drugs or inpatient hospitalization or surgeries. And I guess where data transparency is important is that can we really affect these three items by what your later slides talk about, optimizing sort of preventive strategies and healthcare utilization early. And I think this is where we see this gap. And so it looks terrible because it, when you have, instead in red, you know, RX brand, is, you know, the intake, they're going to start cutting, asking me to pay a lot more for my RX brand. And that's not really the intent, at least from my position on the board. And I think the board is really to try to increase the screening and utilization early on so the fewer people need this brand drug for these conditions that are so advanced that there are not many options or whatever, or the treatment may be much simplified rather than needing heroic drugs you know, for the last 30 days of a person's life. So again, I think this is a complicated area and I appreciate your attempting to clarify it, but I just wanna make sure that people don't take it away is that we're gonna go around and now start increasing co-pays for these high cost areas as the only solution. And maybe a solution in part, but there are other solutions that we need to focus on in terms of early optimal healthcare utilization. Thanks for the comment. Sorry, I'm, I'm preaching. No. I mean, Sorry about that, but. Um, I think, you know, we struggle. Well, you're the appointed physician <laughs> for the board, and we understand, and you have to get that message across. So that's it, okay. It's a great point, and certainly not our intention. And, you know, I think we struggled a little bit with the wording, so I really wish you would have been in the room when we were doing that slide. Yeah. Um, but certainly it's not to reduce utilization because of needed care. It's to get upstream to on the preventive care, which we talked about earlier, the health and well-being in the next couple of slides. It's really those actions to ultimately, yeah, reduce utilization, but not in a punitive right. All right, manner. Commissioner Savansky. Yes. Um, thank you. And Dr. Follinsby, one of the, I heard my father's voice <laughs> ringing through with this. Um, because he would look at, at um, his employer plan um, and also as he, as he went into retirement and said, you know, the goal is to really cut back so that we, it's to get us to the point that we use fewer and fewer services, that it's less and less expensive. And I think 
the point we're trying to make is if there's early utilization and preventive, looking more at the preventive options, the end result is the savings on the other end. But again, how we're presenting it, I mean, the minute I saw that phrase, I went, my God, he's coming back to haunt me. Um, but it, it sends a different message. And I think what we want to say here is we want our members to be more prudent in their use of the benefits they have because we know we have very good benefits, better than most. And um, we want to encourage our members to properly utilize those benefits so that they won't need as much going down the road um, and um, that we can keep our benefits cost effective as well mm -hmm. because we're locked into formulas that are preset. It's not really a matter, there's only so much negotiation that goes on because charter language says this is what you pay, this is what you pay, and that's what you pay. Um, and we're stuck with that. And I think what we want is to optimize the opportunities for the best care um, and save us some money in the long run. So we'll have to work on on our vocabulary a little bit. <laughs> appreciate um, that. But thank you, because um, when you say opportunities, affordability and sustainability, those are key phrases, uh, key words um, that we want to see and we want to present that to our members. So. Um, thank you. Thank you, yeah. And the last thing here, the change recommendations when I look at opportunities um, on page 15, um, I think what we're trying to do is not have to make those changes because the more we make those changes, the more it limits someone's access one way or another. We may not be aware of it, but especially with retirees and those that are older and have low retirement benefits, they may not be able to afford going from 35 to $100 and they may skip some of those preventive opportunities. Thank you. All Thank right. You. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner Savansky. Right, thanks for let this us comment. continue. All right, so on uh, 16 and 17, uh, we talk a little bit about uh, the health and well-being programs that uh, SFHSS um, hosts and, and, and puts on with Carrie and her team. And I'd say, you know, I'm not gonna read this to you. The, the key opportunity here is increased awareness and engagement. So. There's tons of great programs, and we have great utilization, but let's get more um, in, in these amazing programs to really get at that you know, upstream care. Yep. And then on page 18, I'll jump to that, uh, you know, not to want to also acknowledge vendor programs. So uh, just listed out just a couple for each of these. Some of these could be quite long lists, um, but there's lots of programs within your health plan um, to also support um, your health and well-being. So again, uh, creating um, awareness and engagement in these programs. On page 19, getting to the chronic condition management. So in support of those, we see kind of three main uh, avenues, navigation and advocacy, condition-specific support, and value-driven networks. Um, some of the opportunities here we talked a little bit about, uh, I think in September, uh, was kind of digital care, integrated care, support, navigation, and advocacy, um, you know, continuing to grow the ACO uh, population that you have, um, focusing on advanced primary care, 
driving care to high quality providers, and then uh, last but not least, data interoperability, because just because you send data doesn't mean the person getting it can use it. And if you want to refresh on that, there's a presentation from, I believe, August of 2020. So, 2019, sorry, it was in person. Um, all right. <laughs> So, in conclusion, um, a few takeaways uh, from today, and, and really want to put this out there uh, to, to establish the baseline of the, the, the great things that we're doing, and that we want to grow and develop um, and engage further some of these um, initiatives, um, and you may be hearing some of these as we uh, move into REITs and benefits uh, and in future years. So. Again, promoting use of high-quality, low-cost care. Um, we won't say reduce utilization. Um, address affordability and sustainability. Uh, looking at member health and well-being, getting upstream, and then supporting those with chronic conditions. So that uh, concludes the education part of our presentation. I will note on the next page uh, two upcoming sessions that we'll be um, hosting. Um, the fiduciary training in January with Chris Sears. Uh, and in February, an employer's budget position um, that we'll hear from at that time. And just to clarify, uh, in the February session, we sent letters to the four employer entities that this board serves, and we've asked those representatives to come and talk about the budgetary impacts of rising health care costs in terms of their operations. So that's the school district, the community college district, the superior court, as well as the city and county of San Francisco represented by its controller. And in the case of the controller, I took a point of personal privilege because I understand he's leaving in February. I wanted him to also to provide this board with some counsel and guidance, lessons learned, if you will, coming from his experience over the past several years with this issue and how it has impacted overall the budget of the city and county of San Francisco. So we'll see how that goes, but it's not just about their budget positions, but it's talking about the impact of increasing healthcare costs on their total operations, okay? All right, and again, thank you for your leadership in terms of this particular area. I'm getting to Mike in a moment. <laughs> your leadership in terms of these sessions and also, Mike, uh, your uh, expertise in, in supporting uh, the effort of reviewing these topics with us for these past several months. It's called board education, but my hope is that it has laid a public foundation for kind of what we're grappling with as a board as we go through the benefit cycle each year. So thank you again. Are there any other comments from the board at this point? I, I, mean, I just want to reiterate you know, what you've said, but also just again, to where the rubber hits the road, when you look at the three high cost areas that you talk about, um, you know, vaccination decreases you know, absenteeism, which is good for the employer, but also decreases secondary pneumonia from influenza or RSV or uh, COVID and the hospitalizations and the complicated, uh, sometimes very long hospitalizations and rehab that goes into that. Um, the prenatal care, um, we spent a lot of money on very few cases of very complicated pregnancies and, and yet prenatal care can minimize that risk. Um, substance use, we spent a lot of time worrying about and asking our, our 
health planning partners to talk about substance use because we know that uncontrolled substance use translates to hospitalizations, um, complicated surgeries for <coughs> drug users who end up having heart, needing heart transplants or liver transplants and all that, as well as high-cost medications. So these all factor into the same issues, which is early optimal utilization of these services, whether it's substance use, vaccination, pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I want to just highlight that, that we're all driving towards the same point, not just trying to balance copays <laughs> for those who, who are unfortunate enough to be hospitalized. They don't want to be hospitalized. We should have prevented that if we could have, and we could have in some of the cases. So thank you. All right. Uh, there's no further comments from the board. We'll now uh, take public comment on this item. Thank you, President Scott. Public comment is now open. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment. And no one has approached the podium. We'll move to our remote public comment, and our moderator will notify us of any callers in the public comment queue at this time. Board Secretary, there are two callers on the phone line. No callers have entered the public comment queue. Thank you, moderator. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. We'll now move on to item 10. Agenda item number 10, Health Service Board. And let me back up. This is within the Governance Committee section yeah. of the agenda. Uh, agenda item number 10 is the Health Service Board Annual Self-Evaluation and Employee Performance of SFHSS Executive Director Evaluation and the timelines that go along corresponding with the plan year 2023. This is an action item and will be presented by committee member Claire Zavansky. Thank you very much. Um, and I hope I... I have this right because I've got notes here, so thank you very much, um, Board Secretary, for preparing this as well. Um, the <clears throat> Governance Committee did have a meeting um, and reviewed, uh, took a look at the materials for both the Board self-evaluation um, and the evaluation for the Executive Director um, and um, made some recommendations accordingly and we set up a calendar um, with regard to when uh, when these activities are going to take place um, and <clears throat> uh, Monday December 18th the board secretary will send the executive director performance evaluation survey to the health service board um, with uh, Director Yant's self-evaluation uh, attached, and there will be four weeks to complete the evaluation. Um, and I just want to make sure. Um, and it's the same thing with regard to the COO and the CFO. Um, and that's, again, four weeks to complete the evaluations. And then um, a reminder will go from the board secretary uh, to the board and uh, the COO and CFO um, on December 27th, and we'll be looking at that um, basically January 5th. Um, the responses will be due 
and there will be a draft that will be prepared for the governance committee uh, to meet and take a look at those um, in January at some point, a date to be determined. And then the governance committee will meet uh, February 15th, maybe. Um, it's a proposed date um, with regard to the, the final um, recommendations and the report that's going forward. And then not until March 14th um, that those items will come to the board in a closed session for our review. So there's a number of steps um, that will be going forward <clears throat> with regard to these things. Um, also with regard to our um, self-evaluation, um, there have been a number of changes that the governance committee proposed. Um, for example, they took out number three, um, item number 16, uh, a, a term was removed from <clears throat> the policy that was stated, um, item number 24 and number 27, number 34, um, those were removed and then language was changed in item number 38 so that in, instead of a uh, comment about the board engages in effective management succession planning, it would be where feasible the board may make recommendations um, because we looked at how the process works and what the board actually does. So there were a number of modifications that were put forward um, in the governance committee meeting and those will go forward in the materials that will be presented on those dates um, that I listed. Um, and I think, are there any questions with regard to what the governance committee? I'd like to uh, move that we accept the recommendations of the governance uh, subcommittee vis-a-vis uh, -vis the employee performance evaluation, uh, the uh, health service board self-evaluations, as well as the timeline. So all three of those items, I move that we um, accept the, these recommendations. And thank you, Commissioner is there, is there a second? And there is, it's been properly moved and seconded that we accept the report coming from the Governance Committee on the uh, Executive Director Performance Evaluation, the Board Self-Evaluation, and uh, the related timelines. And, and thank you, Commissioner Follinsby, for adding the timelines, which I didn't mention, so. All right, are there any other questions from the Board? Hearing none, thank you, uh, Acting Chair Savansky. <laughs> and uh, the chair of this committee is uh, Mary Howe, who is excused today. And uh, we appreciate her work uh, and, uh, on this project as well. So with that, no further board comment. Is there any public comment? Thank you, President Scott. We'll open this up for public comment. Instructions are being displayed on the screen for those watching on SFGov TV and WebEx. In-person public comment will be first, and then remote public comment. For those callers on the line, press star 3 to be added to the public comment queue. For those watching the meeting on WebEx, click on the raise hand icon to be placed in the public comment queue to speak. We'll begin with any in-person public comment, and no one has approached the podium, so we'll move to our remote public comment. Our moderator will let us know if there are any callers in the public comment queue at this time. I'm not hearing a response from our moderator. We can give one more second while I also support in the number of callers in the public comment queue at this time. 
There are two callers in the public comment queue at this time. No callers have raised their hands. So seeing no further callers, public comment is now closed. All right, thank you. And we'll now move to item, oh, we need a roll call <laughs> vote on this item. A roll call vote starting with President Scott. Aye. Supervisor Dorsey. Aye. Super uh, Commissioner Fallensby. Aye. And Commissioner Zvansky. Aye. It passes unanimously and we'll now move to the next agenda item. Thank you, President Scott. Agenda item number 11, reports and updates from contracted health plan representatives. This is a discussion item and any plan representatives can move to the podium. Are there any health plan representatives who want to bring us any information or make any comments, observations, edits, amendments, <laughs> anything at all? Would the uh, health plan representatives who are here please stand? Ah. I'd like to say to you and your other colleagues in absentia that we look forward to a very happy uh, New Year, and we wish you a very happy holiday season. So thank you for coming today. All right. With that? Um, with no discussion. Is there any discussion? There's, there was no comments, no. so there's no discussion and no need for public comment. Correct. I think I can abrogate the process. All right. The last item on the agenda is? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yes. Commissioner Scott. Commissioner Zavansky. I actually want to go back just a moment to our previous item um, and add a, a couple of recommendations for future education for the board, if I, I may. I think we can do that in the uh, solicitation of board, board, the board survey, which will be part of the board self-evaluation. Okay. All right. That's fine. Thank so you. So that way we'll address that at that time. I've got my notes. The item that I see before me is the adjournment of this meeting. Hearing no objections, the meeting is adjourned. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to everyone. Yep. Adjournment at 3.35 p.m. TV. San Francisco Government Television.